All right, you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 22. We'll be looking at that and get your catechism if you have it, or look at the um, outline that I emailed out to you, and it will have the catechism questions on it as well that we'll be looking at today. Last week in our catechism series, we looked at something very basic that the fourth commandment tells us simply that we ought to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Therefore, as I told you last week, we ought to do that. We make it complicated because we resent being told what to do with our time. If we were not fallen, it would be very easy to understand this commandment. And it would be our delight to keep this commandment. If God has redeemed you, it should be your delight to submit to Him in the first place. And as He works in you, it will become more and more your delight And it should certainly be your delight to have a day that God has appointed for us to spend with him. He redeems us to restore the relationship that he has with us. And we cherish time that he has appointed to spend with us. Just as a wife who loves her husband cherishes time that he has devoted to to spend with her when they they can be together and do things together. This is this is the subject of question 58 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The week before we did question 58, that was last week, we uh, did question 57, where we had an overview of the whole commandment. I really, in a very quick way, summarized everything that we're going to be looking at, put it all together in that in that first sermon on the fourth commandment. Today, we come to question 59, which speaks of how God changed the day that we are to observe from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Let's recite the two catechism questions that we have already done in previous weeks, and then the one that we're doing this week. In reciting, of course, we are confessing what we believe about these commandments. So first, question 57, which is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Question 58. What is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word, expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. So again, very, very straightforward, that, that, uh, the requirements of the commandment. And then today's question is question 59. Question 59, which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since, to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. Now, as you can see, this is telling us that after Jesus was resurrected, God changed the weekly Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Now, this is manifestly not as simple of a subject as the one that we looked at last week when we just looked at the simple fact that we're to keep one whole day in seven, the Sabbath day that God appointed. Now, we're going to look at how he appointed a different day after Jesus came and completed his work on the cross. So, I told you already to uh, look at Psalm 22, and I encourage you to look at that in your Bible. It's important, I think, to be able to follow along. So uh, I also ask you to pay careful attention as I'll be 
reading this in a moment, but first I want you to just look at it in an overview way and sort of see how it is laid out. Psalm 22, many of you already know, is a very wonderful psalm. It was written by David about a thousand years before Jesus came, when David lived, of course. But as a prophet, David was able to do something very remarkable. He was able to write the very prayers that Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. He was able to see as a prophet into the future, and not only into the future, but to see what even people that were standing by the cross could not see. The very meditations of Christ on the cross. Yes, there were certain phrases in this very psalm that that Jesus spoke out loud. But many of these are his prayers and his thoughts that he raised up to the Father. The psalm opens with those very well-known and famous words of any that anyone knows who has read the gospel. The words of agony that Jesus cried as he hung from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm then proceeds with the passionate cry for deliverance, continuing and crying out and wrestling to, to trust in God as he is there, trust, looking to him for his promises, crying out for deliverance, until suddenly everything changes in the psalm. The whole tone changes at verse 21. It's like there's a great, transition here and he declares at the end of verse 21 you have answered me the entire tone changes after that jesus sacrifice for his people's sins has been accepted that's why he says you have answered me so now we have jesus telling the father how he will call the whole church which he refers to as the great assembly. That's what the church is, the great assembly. He will call the whole church together to worship and give thanks. He will declare to the church how God has accepted his sacrifice for our sins. He will lead us in singing praise and giving thanks to God. And note well, he speaks of this not as something that is a one-time event after he is raised from the dead, but is a regular pattern of new worship that will spread from the God-fearing Jews where it starts to all the nations on the earth. It is also praise that will continue not only from Israel to the nations of the earth, but into the future from generation to generation. Jesus here promises as our Redeemer whose sacrifice was accepted how he will then institute New Testament worship or worship under the new covenant, which is different than worship under the old covenant. The blood of the old covenant was that of bulls and goats and offered by priests in a tabernacle made with man's hands. The worship in the new covenant, Jesus says of the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant. In my blood, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. The new covenant is centered around the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for atonement, the final sacrifice. And that means everything changes with new covenant worship. It means that even the day of worship changes, as we shall see. So now I want you to listen carefully as I read to you from this wonderful psalm. And I will begin where that transition is, because that's when we get to the part that speaks about new covenant worship. So Psalm 22 with verse 21, that's where we will begin. Uh, Now I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version, where verse 21 ends with the words, you have answered me. Most of the time in that version, it's laid out where there's a space there, which is very appropriate because this signals the great transition from crying out desperately for deliverance to now rejoicing that he has been heard. If you have another version of the Bible, then don't be, another translation, please don't be confused. Uh, Some translations say, you have rescued me. See, that's the same as you have answered me. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Or some say, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. 
So there you have again, you have answered me. It amounts to the same thing. But when it is laid out that way, the transition is not as clear. Jesus refers to his ordeal upon the cross as being on the horns of wild oxen. The point is, this is the point at which God would either accept or not accept his sacrifice. And of course, God did accept his sacrifice. This is the time on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Very much the same thing as you have answered me. It is done. It is complete. And then we see how because of God's acceptance of him, he is going to institute new, the worship of the New Testament, which of course we know that he did, as we read in John, on the first day of the week. He rose on the first day, and then he went and instituted new covenant worship on the first day of the week. So now I'll read from Psalm 22, verse 21 through 31, and I'll interject comments as I go along. Psalm 22, verse 21 Save me from the mouth, from the lion's mouth, and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Realize what this means for the church. Jesus has gone before God with a sacrifice, is our priest, and the offering that he has made is himself for the sins, for, for, for our sins. And God has heard him. He has heard the priest. He has answered him. He pledges then that he will declare God's name. Jesus pledges, I will declare God's name. Now, of course, we've seen that when we looked at the third commandment, haven't we? What is God's name? It's whatever is revealed about God, whatever he makes known about himself, his names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. And the primary work by which God's name is revealed is this very gospel. And Jesus is saying that he is going to declare God's name to his people, to his church. And he is going to lead them in praise and thanksgiving. He is going to make God known through the gospel. And new covenant worship will be making God known through the gospel and praising him for what he has done. Like he had never been praised before because the revelation had never been so full. So verse 22 goes on. He says, this is where he promises that he will lead his people in worship. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly or the church. I will praise you. Then in verse 23, he addresses first those among the Jews who fear God. Later, he's going to address or speak of the nations. But he begins with his own people to whom he was sent. Israel from whom he was promised to whom he was promised and from whom he came. So but he speaks to the ones who fear God in Israel, not to the ones who have no regard for God. Verse 23, he says, "You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him all you offspring of Israel." Now, in the next verse, verse 24, he declares how God has not rejected him when he was afflicted for them. He tells them the reason to praise God, because God answered him, because God heard him. Look at verse 24. For he, God, has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's talking about himself. He was afflicted for our sins, and God accepted it. He didn't reject it. He didn't despise it. Nor has he hidden his face from him. You see, it's from an individual. But when he cried to him, he heard. The father heard. Verse 21 again, you have answered me. Now, in verse 25, he insists that he will keep this vow of assembling God's people to give thanks for the gospel, for hearing him. Verse 25 My praise, he says, shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Now, understand that we've talked about this many times. Many of the Psalms speak of it, and it's all through the Old Testament, that when they made vows, it was customary that they would make a vow and say, 
if God, like Jacob, if God will bring me back to this place safely, then the Lord will be my God. I'll, I'll, this will be his house. I'll offer sacrifices to him. I'll give a tenth of all that I have. I'm going to worship here. I'm going to worship because God heard me. He, he delivered me. He saved me. And now I am his. So it was customary in fulfilling a vow in which someone promised to praise God to invite the poor to the celebration as well. And when it comes to the gospel, of course, we're all poor because we're lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. So look at what it says in verse 26. Who is the assembly made up of? The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Those who are looking for salvation in Israel. Let your heart live forever, he says to them. What a blessing that is. See how Jesus blesses them with eternal life. If, if they come as those who are poor in spirit and they're looking to him, they're seeking him for salvation, he says, your heart's going to live forever. This worship of the church that, that begins in the gospel with renewed hearts that have been born again and that are resting in Christ in faith, it's going to bring eternal life. It does give eternal life. And then what happens? It doesn't stay confined to Israel, does it? Verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Not only will the worship then spread to the nations of the world, but it will also spread to future generations. He goes on to say this in verse 30, a posterity, in other words, descendants, the people that come from the people that were alive in that century, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. So parents to their children from one generation to another, the gospel will go on as it has. All of these things have been fulfilled. My brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the church has been doing ever since Jesus instituted new covenant worship. In obedience to Jesus' call, the Jews who feared God rejoiced in what God had done through Jesus, his disciples and others that believed, and now the worship has spread to the nations. It is going on now 2,000 years later. This is what the church does each Sunday under the new covenant. And what we're looking at today in particular is the fact that when Jesus instituted this worship, he instituted it on the first day of the week, the day that he rose from the dead. There are all sorts of things we could look at and how things changed uh, with the introduction of New Testament worship. For example, the worship was no longer at the temple with priests and sacrifices. It was completely changed. But the change that we are going to focus on today is specific to our topic. It is the change of God's appointed day for weekly worship from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. And that brings me to our first point that the Lord Jesus established weekly worship in the new covenant on the first day of the week, the day that he rose from the dead. He sanctified the first day in the same way that he had sanctified the seventh day at creation. Do you remember what method he used to sanctify the seventh day in the beginning? It was not by a mere commandment or even by a commandment initially. The commandment, the fourth commandment, was not given until he redeemed Israel and met them at Sinai. At creation, though, the seventh day was simply the day that he stopped creating things. He was finished. He stopped because he was finished with his work. There was a Sabbath, a cessation. And then he sanctified the seventh day of every week and blessed it for our sake, which of course meant 
that it ought to be observed. Jesus reminds us in Mark 2.27 that he sanctified and blessed the day for us when he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. We should have needed no command to observe it. We didn't need a command to observe it. God had set the day apart. So, of course, we're to set the day apart. He he had placed in it a blessing for us in in our communion with him, our our worship of him, our focused worship on him. And, of course, we would want to honor him and to receive that blessing. He did not tell us to keep it. He set it apart to be kept. Of course, those who love him would want to keep the day. It was only after the fall that he had to command us to do what? To remember the Sabbath day that he had given to us. He gave us he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel after he redeemed them from Egypt to call them to live as they ought to have been living all along, as all men ought to have been living all along since the beginning of the world. Jesus established the pattern on the first day of the week for new covenant worship in a similar way to the way that he had established seventh-day worship at creation. First of all, he sanctified the day by himself entering into a permanent Sabbath rest from his work of atoning for our sins, of redemption. He had come to die for his people's sins, and on the first day of the week, he arose from the dead, having not only died on the cross, but also been subjected to death for the the three days that he was on in the grave, counting the way the Jews did with the, uh, really it's two days and the way we count. Uh, He rose from the dead and rested from this great work because it was finished. There was no more suffering for him to endure. There was no more death for him to endure. It was finished. We read in John 20 verse 1 that he rose on the first day of the week. That was the, the end of his humiliation. And then as with the Sabbath at creation, He sanctifies the day of the week, that day, as a weekly day of honor for him and as a blessing for us. In Psalm 22, we saw that he promised that because God had received his sacrifice to save his people from their sins, that he would lead the church to praise God for that, that he would spread, that this praise would spread into the world and that it would continue from one generation to another. And in John 20, verse 19, we see, we saw in our reading, that he initiates this worship on what day? The first day of the week. If you look at John 20, verse 19, you can see that John emphasizes how Jesus did this on the first day of the week. He wants to make sure that we do not miss this. Verse 19. Then he says, the same day, this is John 20, 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, okay, the church is the assembly, the ecclesia, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. He declared peace through the cross, showing them his wounds. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Indeed, they were very glad. And then he sends them out to preach the good news of forgiveness to others. Just what he said in Psalm 22, that he would tell all of those who feared God in Israel, and then it would go to the nations. Look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. There's peace by my cross. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, you see, based on what he had done, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So those that believe would be forgiven. The disciples would declare that. And those that do not believe will remain under the wrath of God. So by this, Jesus is establishing a pattern of honoring God and receiving blessing from God on the first day of the week. The Father and the Son receive honor for this work of the gospel when Jesus declares it 
and the disciples receive blessing of the Holy Spirit to lead others into this worship and to bless them with the forgiveness of sins. This is how the pattern is set for preaching the good news and praising God in the church on the first day of the week. The first day is sanctified, and there is a special blessing of God given on the first day of the week. Now, of course, they are not restricted to the first day of the week for their preaching. They preach on other days as well. But there is a deliberate pattern and an institution of the first day that is established by Jesus. And this is reinforced all the more by the fact that Jesus returns a week later, again on the first day of the week, to lead them in praise again. John 20, 25 notes that Thomas was not with them on that first Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead because he was running errands or something. And in verse 26, we see that Jesus comes back. Again, he comes back when the disciples are assembled with Thomas on the first day of the week. Verse 26 says, And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Understand that when it says, I mentioned this already, after eight days, it brings us exactly to the next Sunday. Because when they counted, they began counting from the day that they were on. So the Sunday that Jesus rose was day one. Monday was day two. Tuesday was day three. Wednesday was day four. Thursday was day five. Friday, day six. Sunday, I mean, Saturday, day seven. And Sunday, day eight. So Jesus underlines the, the, the sanctification of the first day of the week by waiting a whole week to come back to his disciples again and skipping the seventh day, which was the old Sabbath, and coming to meet them on the first day. But of course, that is still not all. To make it all the more conclusive that Jesus has sanctified the first day of the week as the new covenant Lord's day, he also pours out his Holy Spirit on that day, on his church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, Luke, who wrote Acts, emphasizes that it was when the day of Pentecost had fully come that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. The day of Pentecost, which means the 50th day, was always on the first day of the week. The Jews were to count seven Sabbaths, 49 days, starting on the day after the Sabbath at the end of the Passover week. By counting that day as the first day, the 50th day was the first day of the week. This is very clear from Leviticus 23.16. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. It is well to point out that Pentecost was the day that Moses, the Mosaic Covenant was inaugurated to the nation of Israel. It's very, very interesting. So under Moses, the law was written on stones on the day of Pentecost. And under Christ, the law was written on the heart of men by the Holy Spirit, who was poured out on that same day. That is the promise of the new covenant, that God will write the law on the hearts of his people. When was that done? On the first day of the week. Furthermore, consider what happened to the disciples when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Remember how we saw that the Sabbath was instituted as a day for God's work, his completed work to be honored and for the people to be blessed in that work. Well, what greater blessing was there for the church than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them? And what did they do when the Spirit was poured out? Acts 2.11 says that they praised God for his wonderful works in the various languages of the people that were there at Pentecost. Peter preached to them about the great work that God had done to save his people from their sins. What else was the, the works that they were praising God for than what Jesus had just done? So God's work that Jesus had finished was honored, and the disciples and those who believed were blessed, greatly blessed, once again on the first day of the week, the new day for New Testament worship, for God's honor, and for the blessing of his people. And so we have the first day of the week 
thenceforth sanctified as the day of blessing for the people of God. Just like the first Sabbath, the same day that God rested from his work was the day that he sanctified and blessed for his people. But how do we know for sure that God intended it to be a pattern for us that we would worship on the first day? We might have reason to doubt if the only thing we had was the pattern that I have already laid out. Yes, it is clear that wonderful things occurred on the first day of the week, but how do we know that the church was to continue sanctifying the day from then on? There is no command, so how can we know? Now, let me just pause there for a minute, though. I don't want to underemphasize the power of what we have already seen. Every time all of these blessings skip over the seventh day and occur on the first day when the disciples are assembled together. Every single time, the first day, the first day, the first day. So there's an emphasis, a clear pattern here. And really, we could know only from that. But we have further uh, we have further confirmation of this from the Word of God. First, let me remind you again that there, were, there was no command issued, at least not a recorded one, for the seventh day either for many centuries. But when God did issue the command, He told them that, the day, that they ought to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Because why? God had set it apart. He had sanctified it as the day that He finished His work. And He had blessed it. When he came into the world, so when he, when he made the world, so we should not be too surprised if the Lord established the first day for us to keep without an express command. What makes it conclusive, however, is that we find the church under the apostles' meeting on the first day of the week. Remember that Jesus appointed the apostles to set up the church according to his directives, according to all that he had commanded. They were his representatives to institute and establish New Covenant worship, New Testament worship. What they instituted, we are to follow. We say that what they did in worship and church government is normative. That's the way that it's spoken of by theologians, meaning that it carries the force. What they did, what they set up in the church, carries the weight of commandment, the force of a commandment. So what do we have as evidence that they instituted the first day in the New Testament? Well, first, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we have the very simple statement that the custom of the church in Troas, just a, you know, a random church as far as our example goes, was to gather on the first day of the week to break bread. It's just mentioned in passing. This is what they did. It says very simply, Acts 20, verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So you have them celebrating the Lord's Supper and hearing the preaching of the word on the first day of the week. Paul waited for this weekly gathering so that he could meet with them all when they gathered on Sunday. I'm sure he visited them all through the week, but... If, if they had gathered on Saturday, he could have done it then. A second support that the church met on the first day of the week is found in 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so, must, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. The plain sense of the text is that the church collected offerings when they assembled together on the first day of the week. These two passages are are enough to verify that the pattern of worship on the first day was, was sanctioned by Christ, by his apostles, as a permanent practice. However, there is more uh, there's more that lends support to this. In Revelation 1.10, John the Apostle mentions that Jesus appeared to him on the Lord's day to give him the revelation that was given on that day. He says in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. There's a, there are a couple of things that are significant about this. First, this is 35 years after the resurrection. And the first day of the week is still a significant enough day to John that he expressly mentions it. Secondly, 
that Jesus continues the pattern of visiting his people, especially on the first day of the week for things that are significant to his church. And as we might expect, this pattern of worship on the first day of the week is not only found in scripture, but also in the history of the church. In the early church, the main issue about the day of worship seemed to be about whether the seventh day and the seemed to be about whether both the seventh day and the first day were to be observed. Never was it about whether the first day should be observed. In these discussions, the seventh day is generally referred to as the Sabbath day and the first day as the Lord's day, as we see, as we see reflected in John's language. But the question is never about whether the Lord's day ought to be observed, just whether the seventh day must also continue to be observed. It is much like it was with circumcision. No, no one in the New Testament questioned that baptism should be practiced under the new covenant. The question was whether circumcision was also still required. Baptism is not even mentioned in the debate about circumcision, just as the Lord's Day is not mentioned about the Sabbath because nobody questioned the Lord's Day. The only question, again, was whether the old Sabbaths, including the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost and all those, were to be continued along with circumcision and the rest of the ceremonial law. That was the big debate. Here are just a couple of examples from the fathers of the early church stating the conclusion that the church reached about the day. that the, Basically, the Sabbath day was replaced from this, that no longer was it the seventh day, but now the Lord's day, the first day of the week that Christians observe. Ignatius wrote this in about AD 100, he said, If therefore those who are brought up in the ancient order of things, the Jewish way, have come to the possession of a new hope, the gospel, no longer observing the Sabbath, okay, they're no longer doing all that was instituted under the old covenant, but living in observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. So he's saying the Jews transition from the Old Testament worship to New Testament worship on Sunday. And then in the document called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which was written about A.D. 125, we have this. But every Lord's day do ye gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving. Here you see what we saw at Troas. The first day was the day that the disciples gathered together to break bread and to worship God, to have the Lord's Supper. And one of my favorite testimonies out of Justin Martyr is found in his famous Apology, which was written about A.D. 140. First he says, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the apostles of the prophets are read. So, of course, he's talking about the scriptures, right? As long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayers ended, Bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability, and the people absent saying amen. I'm sorry, (laughs) people absent. And the people assent saying amen. They give the amen like we do in our church. And there is distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. So you see that uh, the same things that we do in our worship, because these are the things that were appointed by the apostles in the New Testament that we continue to practice. But when did he say we do it? On the, on the day called Sunday. Then he adds these words, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, okay, he's talking about creation now, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. So 
God began the new creation of the old world, or the, the creation of the old world, the, the, the world itself, on the, the first day. And now on the first day, the new creation of the new world begins. And he's saying that, that, that we, we do this, um, we observe this day. He says, for he, has, he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday. And on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, Sunday, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, like we saw, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. Now, many other examples could be given. But besides this, we have the almost universal practice of Sunday worship, and we have no controversies about whether Sunday should be observed in both the Eastern and the Western churches until this day. There's, there's very, very little controversy. I mean, there was so much controversy about whether, uh, like, like with circumcision and things like that, but th- never about whether there should be baptism. Never about whether there should be the first day of the week. There's some controversy about whether the Sabbath, the old Sabbath should still be kept this, the seventh day, but never a question of the first day. This was not then a mere tradition of men, as some have alleged, but an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have seen. And now I would like to show you why the Lord changed the weekly Sabbath in the New Covenant. The day was changed because our Lord completed and so rested from a greater work than the work of creation. So it superseded the old. Let's break that down into two parts. First, we will look at the new work that God has rested from. Then we'll look at how that new work calls for a new Sabbath day. So what is the new work that God rested or took a Sabbath from? The new work that God rested from was the work of our redemption. It was a great work indeed that involved God in the fullness of time, sending forth his only son, Jesus Christ, to come in the flesh and to die on the cross for his people's sins. The son of God, although he was fully God, had to become human flesh, a marvelous wonder in itself, And then he was crucified, died, and buried for us. And as we have already seen, the Father accepted that work on the first day of the week. He raised him from the dead to prove that he accepted that work. That was when Jesus entered into his Sabbath rest. Remember that there are two kinds of rest that we spoke about, or Sabbaths, that you can take. Two sorts of them. The one is the Sabbath you take because you're done. You're finished. You finished the job that you set out to do. As God did when he rested after making the world. He didn't rest in a cyclical way. Like he was tired and then rested and then worked again for another week and then rested again. No, this is the kind of rest where he was finished. That is the kind of rest that Jesus took when he rose from the dead. He declared to us, that we were now fully justified on the basis of his finished work. His suffering on the cross and his death was done. There was a new covenant established by which we approach God by his blood, which he calls at the Lord's Supper, the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins. It was done. The other kind of Sabbath that we talk about is the Sabbath that you take when you take a break from what what is ongoing, work that is ongoing, like the weekly Sabbath that we take. From the beginning, God established that we would have a weekly Sabbath of this sort, a weekly Sabbath to honor his finished work of creation. But when Jesus rose, there was an even greater work that he rested from because it had now been finished. And that is the work of Jesus paying for our sins, the work of final redemption. The epistle to the Hebrews lays this out for us. In Hebrews 1.3, we're told that Jesus, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He was finished purging our sin. He didn't have to keep purging our sins forever. There was no more suffering required. He completely purged our sins forever. His offering was accepted for our sin on the cross. Hebrews lays out the changes of the new covenant. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The work is complete. He has rested. He has ceased from his work as God did from his when he created the world. That is exactly what Hebrews 4.10 tells us. It says of Jesus, 
For he, this is Hebrews 4.10, for he, that is Jesus, who has entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his. He ceased from his work of redemption because he finished it in the same way that really it was he also that created the world, finished his work of creation, as it says, as God did from his work. The Trinity, of course, brought brought the creation of the world. They also brought redemption. But um, there was a, a, a completion. It's the same sort of work. rest. I'll read it again. Hebrews 4.10. For he, Jesus, who has entered his rest, finished his work, has himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his creation. So redemption is the new work that the Lord rested from because the work is finished. He entered into a permanent Sabbath of rest. And that brings us to the second point. A new rest for God from a new monumental work of God calls for a new weekly Sabbath for us as God's people. Just as God's rest from creating the world called for a weekly Sabbath day of rest for us to honor God's work and to receive his blessing from that work, so the completion of his work of redemption calls for a new weekly Sabbath day of rest for us to honor this new work and to receive blessing from it. That's why Jesus blessed and sanctified the first day of the week. Setting it apart is a day to proclaim the gospel and to praise God and to receive blessing in his finished work. It is surely obvious that God's new work of redemption is far more excellent than his old work of creation. As great as that work was, he called the world out of nothing into being. But the work of redemption takes precedence over the work of creation. And because it was finished on the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week, it demands that the day of rest be changed to the first day of the week. This does not mean that we no longer honor God for creating the world or that we no longer look for his blessing on us as in creation. It means rather that our attention is drawn especially now to the work of redemption that he has completed for us. That is our primary focus. The scripture even refers to it as a new creation. This new creation calls for a new day of rest for us. Just as God entered into a new rest, so then we are given a new weekly day of rest. And that is also spoken of in Hebrews 4 in verse 9, where it says of us under the new covenant that there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. The word translated rest is the word sabbatismos in the original. Of course, you hear the word Sabbath in that. There remains then, you see, a Sabbath rest, is how it can be translated, for the people of God. We still have, as the people of God, a Sabbath rest in the New Testament. Only now, as verse 10 says, it is in particular in honor of the rest that Jesus entered into when he entered into his rest after his suffering and death for us. Some people don't see verse 10 as speaking about the rest that Jesus entered into, They see it as speaking about the rest that we enter when we trust in him for salvation instead of trusting in our own works. That's a nice thought, but it doesn't fit with the context because whoever it is speaking about is said to have ceased from his work as God did from his. That is, resting as someone who had completed a task. The one who rested because he finished his task of redemption was Jesus. Because he did, there remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The people of God still have a Sabbath rest to observe each week. Because Jesus completed his work of redemption and rested just as God initially completed his work of creation and rested. Under the new covenant, this new day of rest comes with a whole new way of worshiping God. The book of Hebrews is actually all about that new worship. That's what Hebrews teaches. We won't, as I say, go into it, but it talks about like the fruit of our lips is a sacrifice that we give thanks to his name with the fruit of our lips, uh, giving praise um, rather than offering blood of bulls and goats and such in thanksgiving. It talks about atonement by, anyway, I said I wouldn't go into it. So, so how should we respond 
to the change of day. We ought to observe it faithfully, of course. If the Lord has sanctified a new day to honor His work of redemption, we should be very diligent to keep that day. We should desire to to look for the blessing that He has put into that day. The appointment of a new day calls for a new focus for us. We ought now to center our attention each Lord's Day in particular on the new work that God has done in Christ. We're still to praise God for His wonderful work of creation, of course. And we're to thank Him for all the blessings that we enjoy in this created world. And we're to look for blessing from Him, asking Him to give us this day our daily bread, as Jesus taught us, the blessings of this life. That's all well and good. But all the more, we are to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us and center our worship around the gospel. We're to look for blessing from that gospel through faith in Christ crucified. We're to look for forgiveness of sins and for the blessing of the Holy Spirit to be poured out on us. As we saw, Jesus was so thrilled with what the Father had done that he made a vow to gather each week, to gather us each week to honor this great work and to give thanks for it. That's why we're passionate about gathering together. Indeed, what a great work has been done. The Father loved us so much that he sent his Son to pay the full penalty for our sins. And now that work is all done. It's complete. The church that loses sight of this great work, and there are many that do lose sight of this great work, is a church that is lost. There are churches that turns to moralism and to, to works and to being good people and that sees all religions as, as the same and trying to accomplish the same thing. They lose the, the gospel of redemption, the very thing that we, we, we focus on and are to recognize on this day, the, the very reason that Jesus calls us together to remember the gospel. Let our hearts focus on what great things have been done to save our souls. And let us look to God to help us to be blessed in this marvelous work that Jesus has finished for us. I remember uh, unregenerate ones who, who complained before about the preaching and such in our church because that we talk too much about these things with Jesus being our Redeemer and saving us from our sins. The character of the new day should be one of joy and gladness in these things. The Lord's Day is not a day of fasting and gloom, but a day of joy and salvation, because God did not despise the affliction of the afflicted one of Christ our great high priest. But when he cried to him, he heard. We come to him for salvation and our joy is made full. It's not a time when we're crying out to God to do something, but it's when we're thanking God for what he has done. Not that we don't cry out to God to work in our lives and so on in in light of what he has done. But the tenor of the day is that we are rejoicing. How glad we should be to praise our God the entire day. Psalm 118 prophetically declares what we are to do on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. On the day that the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Look first at verses 19 and 20, Psalm 118. I invite you to turn there. We're going to sing it in a minute. But go to verse, uh, Psalm 118, verse 19. Here Jesus prays, saying, Open to me the gates of righteousness. They were closed, weren't they? Because the church was full of sin. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. He, representing all of us, for us, I will go through the gates of righteousness and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, he says, through which the righteous shall enter. You can't go through it unless you're righteous. Either he who is righteous or he who makes us righteous. The gates were closed to the king because he was the king of an ungodly nation. His church, which is filled with sin. But as our king, who represents us, Jesus requests entry because he has suffered for our sins as our priest and he has represented us as righteous and holy. In verse 21 then, he promises that since the Father has answered him and given him in his church entry, he will praise him. Right? Just what we saw in Psalm 22. The words of verse 21 are, I will praise you for you have answered me 
and have become my salvation. My salvation is the king representing these sinful people who is cut off because of their sin. Now Jesus has been saved. He has been delivered. He has been heard. You have answered me. He said, deliver me. Then he said, you have answered me. The God of my salvation. In the next verse, he explains that though he was rejected by the leaders of the church, which of course he was, God has accepted him as the foundation of the church. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected. They said, that stone is not righteous. That stone is to be crucified. That stone is blasphemous. Cut off that stone. And they crucified him. The stone which the builders rejected has become, by God's hand, the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the whole church. The church then joins him in praising God for accepting us all through Jesus Christ. We're built on the foundation. We go in because of his righteousness. Verse 23 and 24 say, then this was the Lord's doing. He made us righteous in this way. It is marvelous in our eyes. What could be better than to be cut off and condemned forever and then to be saved and made alive forever through the righteousness of Christ. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What day? What is the day that the Lord has made? Well, it's the day referred to when God heard Jesus. It's the day when he was raised from the dead. It was the day when he entered into his rest, when he finished his work, when he became the first fruits of the new creation, when the stone that was rejected was made the chief cornerstone and declared to be so to his gathered disciples on the first day of the week. And then the blessing poured out because of that at Pentecost, the first day of the week, Sunday. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Not Tuesday or Saturday, but Sunday. I mean, of course, God has made all days. But this is the day that the Lord has made for us to rejoice and be glad because our Savior has redeemed us. In verse 25, we pray for blessing of this salvation to go forth. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And in verse 26, we declare how blessed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is from the house of the Lord, the assembly of his people, the temple now of living stones that he has established by his suffering and death. This is what we're to do on the first day of the week. Let us pray that we will be faithful and that the worship of God for the gospel on the first day of the week for hearing and receiving his son for our sins will increase all over the world. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Please stand for prayer. Most gracious and merciful Father, how we praise you and thank you that you have heard our cry. That, Lord, you have heard the cry of our Redeemer. Truly, Lord, your people who have faith join their cries to his cry through all the ages. They cried out for the salvation that you had promised in the Son that was to come. They cried out for the blessing that you had promised that would spread to all the nations. That you said that you would bless Abraham's seed and that all the nations would be blessed in him. We thank you, O Lord, that when Jesus Christ came, that he fulfilled all of the prophecy that declared that that this blessing would come and that it would come about, that he would gather his disciples together and declare to them the good news, that he would declare your name to them and would praise you in the midst of the assembly. And we thank you, O Lord, that that is exactly what we do now as your people. And we pray, O Lord, that we would have faith, that we would have hearts that are devoted to the gospel, hearts that believe the gospel, hearts that are established in your truth, that we would be founded upon the stone that the builders rejected, that you made the chief cornerstone on the first day of the week when you raised him from the dead. We pray that we would go forward with confidence in his name, trusting him as the God of our salvation. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the Lord's day. Receive now our Lord's blessing to you that comes to you through Jesus Christ, if indeed you are established on the stone that was rejected that God made the chief cornerstone on the first day of the week. Now may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Amen.